Hello and welcome back to the Long History Short. I'm Ranjit and you're listening to another interesting episode in the mini-series on Ashok. For most Indians, there's a one-liner story for Ashok. It's about an ambitious and aggressive king who gives up his idea of military conquest after he witnesses the massacre, the devastating consequences of violence and war on the battlefield of Kalinga. And he goes on to embrace Buddhism and become the face of peace and non-violence in the history of India. Isn't this the most common theme that you've heard repeated around you? In history textbooks, in history comics, in television series, in movies, everywhere that you look at Ashok, he's shown in a very similar light. But it will surprise you to know that the legends that were written in the ancient times about Ashok, they don't even mention the Kalinga War and they pay little or no attention to his edicts. Isn't that surprising? But at the same time, we know that the mention of the Kalinga War is made by Ashok himself in his edict. He's also talked about the entire change that he wanted in the face of his administration from being a very um, conquest-occupied administration, a very expansionist administration, to one that was governed, ruled by the laws of the Dhamma, the principles of Buddha's Dhamma. So then what happens to the legends? Why don't we know about the legends? One reason why we probably don't know about these legends is that they have been always treated as um, old scriptures written by people with a certain agenda of, you know, fulfilling their own objectives of making Buddhism look larger than life, of making Ashok look larger than life. And that's why historians have sometimes just discarded what the legends, you know, have to say about Ashok. At the same time, the legends do have certain exaggerations, which also may have made it difficult for the historians to accept some of these things as facts. But historians have relied on the legends when it is necessary. They have used a lot of the dates, a lot of the references to timelines, to events from Ashok's life in these legends. They have used parts of the legend to reconstruct his history. So it's sort of important as a person interested in the story of Ashok to also hear what the legends have to say about him. And that's what I'm going to do over the next two episodes. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the Indian legend that describes the life and the story of Ashok. The Indian legend about Ashok is known as the Ashok Avadan. Avadan is a term which is used generally to suggest either a story or a legend about an important person or an important event or an important institution like Buddhism, for example. And Ashok Avdan happens to be part of a much larger collection of stories, which is known as the Divya Avdan. And the Divya Avdan was created in the first place to explain the origins of certain Buddhist myths or certain Buddhist legends. It was also created to explain how some of the towering figures in Buddhism came to accept and adopt the religion. This includes Ashok as well, because there's a number of chapters in fact dedicated to the story of Ashok's transformation or Ashok's conversion to Buddhism. And that collection of chapters or stories is known as the Ashok Avadan by itself. 
I'm going to use a particular version which is written by John S. Strong. And he was one of those people who collected and rewrote a lot of the Buddhist texts. And he's also compiled the Ashok Avdan as a part of the Divya Avdan. And I'm going to use his uh, material as reference. Of course, I'm going to make it simpler, shorter, crispier for you to consume because the Divya Avdan or the Ashoka Avdan by itself can be a pretty lengthy text to go through. So let me start with the story of the person who will go on to become Ashok's spiritual mentor. He will also become Ashok's guide on the pilgrimage that he later makes to all those sites which are associated with the Buddha's life. This individual's name was Upagupta and Upagupta's story begins even before his own birth. This is characteristic of many of the personalities whose stories are included in the Divyavdan. They usually start with a former life or before they are born and somehow connect them with Buddha in their former lives to explain how they get the merit that they do in these stories in their actual or their next lives. So Upagupta's father, even before the birth of his son, had actually signed him away or signed him up as an attendant to one of the older monks from the Buddhist Sangha. And when the time comes for the father to give away the son, this Buddhist monk comes to his home and he sees that Upagupta's father, who's a perfumer by business, his son is now grown up and helping him with the business. And he says that you need to now hand him over as an attendant to me as you had promised. And he says this also because he has heard of the immense control that Upagupta has even as an uninitiated person over his own desires. And there's another story associated with how Upagupta actually wards off the designs or the temptations created by a courtesan named Vasavadatta. We won't go into all of that, but basically the monk impressed with Upagupta's potential comes to his father and requests him to give away the son. At this point, the father being a businessman puts a condition that he can do so only when his business is at a no profit, no loss situation. Interesting, isn't it, that so many hundreds of years ago, people were thinking in almost the same way as we would probably think today about losing an important economic resource or a part of our family who's responsible for bringing home the money. So the monk with his supernatural abilities actually makes this happen, which is a very difficult scenario as all of us would know in any business. And he makes this happen and impressed with the monk and, you know, his supernatural capabilities, Upagupta's father gives away the son. Rest of the story, Upagupta goes on to become a very well-known, very renowned monk who's followed by a large number of disciples he also defeats the arch-villain of Buddhist stories, Mara, in one of you know the episodes where Mara tries to tempt him with various things, tries to tempt his disciples with various things, and finally gives in and seeks Upagupta's forgiveness. So Upagupta is turned into this towering figure so that when he comes into Ashok's life, we can accept and we can uh, respect the fact that, you know, such a high monk, a monk of, you know, such high rank is the one who leads Ashok into his conversion. Now the story or the legend Ashok Avdan shifts quickly to one of the previous births of Ashok himself. 
and it shows Ashok as a small boy, a young boy named Jaya, playing with his friend Vijay. So Jaya and Vijay are playing on the streets of a capital city named Rajagraha. And this used to be the erstwhile capital of the Magadh Empire, even before Patliputra. And as these kids are playing on the street, the Buddha happens to enter the city begging for arms. And when these boys see the Buddha, Jaya's first reaction is to pick up a handful of dirt and drop it into the Buddha's begging bowl. The Buddha is mighty impressed by this act of generosity, by this response of kindness from such a young child. And it probably shows that in those days for Buddhist monks to get arms from people must not have been all that easy. But when Buddha sees this boy react so quickly, he actually makes a prophecy that 100 years after the Buddha himself has attained Nirvana, there will be a king named Ashok and this boy will be that king who will go on to become a Dharmaraj, who will go on to become a Chakravartin. So he gives him all these lofty titles and says that this boy who will then be the king is the one who will take his word across the entire subcontinent which the Buddha calls by the ancient name of Jambudvipa. And he says he will spread his word by constructing 84,000 uh, dharmarajikas or chaityas or stupas, whatever we may want to call them. And he says this is how uh, a king will come 100 years after his nirvana to carry forward his word. The legend then fast forwards to that point in time where Ashok is born to the king Bindusar. And there is a short story of, you know, how Ashok's mother becomes the chief queen, etc. I'll not go into that story. You can probably read it for yourselves in the Ashok Avdan if you ever pick it up. But basically, the king and his chief queen together produce two young heirs to the throne, Ashok and Vitta Ashok. Of course, there are other princes who are born of other queens as well. But Ashok and Vitta Ashok are put to a test along with the other princes as they grow up and enter their teens. They are put to a test uh, by an Ajivic ascetic. And he tests them for fitness to become the next king. Now, there's a small story here that the king somehow is not very pleased with Ashok. And this is not owing to any of his uh, innate characteristics or his nature or capabilities. But of all things, the fact that Ashok doesn't look too great, uh, he has unpleasant looks and he also has a rough complexion. And because of this, Bindusar is never too happy to see Ashok. Now the ascetic knows this background. So when he realizes that it's actually Ashok who is going to be the next successor and he knows this through his psychic qualities that, uh, you know, who's going to become the next king, he keeps that secret to himself and he does not share it with even the king. Years go by and the king, King Bindusar, is now on his deathbed. And when he's on his deathbed, the ideal heir to the throne, Sushima, who is also probably his eldest son, he is not in the capital city. And taking advantage of this, some of the ministers who are more loyal to Ashok suggest to the king that he should put Ashok on the throne to just avoid any kind of disruption. And when Sushima returns, they will hand over the throne to him rightfully. The king reluctantly agrees to this and then he breathes his last. After the king Bindusar is gone, 
obviously ashok and his ministers are not in a mood to hand over the throne to sushima who has rushed back from ujjain where he was managing the province of that country and when sushima nears the capital actually ashok and one of his ministers radha gupta they hatch a plan by which sushima falls into a trap and is killed instantly now this kind of a character begins to develop you know after ashok's father's death so it probably also tells us that there might have been some strife between ashok and his brothers but it just deepens ashok goes on to become a darker and much darker personality much darker character as the story progresses he ends up ordering his ministers beheaded he ends up ordering uh, hundreds of women from his harem beheaded just because they offend him just because they express their dislike for his looks he just kills them but that's not all ashok actually hires an expert executioner and builds a beautiful palace a palace which will attract anyone who's passing by it and he makes this chief executioner sort of the master of that palace and he orders him that anyone entering this palace should not leave it alive and this executioner overjoyed with his new responsibility comes up with novel ways of uh, torturing tormenting and executing people he does really gross things like throwing people on a hot iron floor chopping them into geometric pieces flaying them alive if you just read the descriptions of the kind of things that happen in this palace of torture it will put any present day series you know all these crime series and all these horror and murder series to shame the kind of descriptions that are there so why do the buddhists do this when they write this you know legend about ashok they probably want to create the image of a very very cruel very wicked very villainous kind of king because there's a transformation in the coming and this transformation comes when a buddhist monk named samudra happens to stroll into this palace attracted by its outside beauty as soon as he enters he's obviously captured by this chief executioner named chandagirika and he tells him that his life is up and he will be executed he'll be tortured any time now the monk begs of him and asks for some time some respite so he gets 7 days to you know sort of spend doing whatever he may wish but he's going to be killed at the end of it over these 7 days this monk prays to the buddha and finally he sort of you know attains this state of fearlessness and this helps him to conjure his supernatural powers and no matter what the executioner tries he puts him in a hot boiling cauldron of waste which is kept over uh, large flames but nothing happens to him he tries various things but this monk just happens to uh, use his powers and escape every attempt on his life so much so that ashok himself decides to visit the palace and witness this miracle that's happening and when ashok witnesses it for himself he stops this entire process of torture and bows down to the monk and asks him how does he have these kind of supernatural these kind of miraculous capabilities 
And that's when the monk by premonition knows that Ashok will come to him and he will transform. And so he imparts the word of the Buddha. He tells him how his actions have consequences and he should reconsider everything that he is you know, doing to his people, everything that he's doing to his friends, his enemies, whoever it may be. And Ashok gets converted by this entire discourse. Of course, the executioner is killed, the palace is shut down, Ashok becomes a reformed person and he goes on to make pilgrimages where Upagupta, who came at the start of the legend, becomes his mentor, becomes his guide, takes him to the various sites associated with the Buddha's life, explains to him every event in the Buddha's life in a way that, you know, Ashok begins to understand the Buddha's evolution and perhaps he also starts considering his own evolution. But the legend doesn't stop here. The legend goes on to talk about how Ashok actually builds those 84,000 stupas and how he spends a massive amount of his wealth, a massive part of his state treasury on not only building these monuments, but also holding the third largest or rather the third great Buddhist council. There were two Buddhist councils that were held by two earlier kings of Magad. Uh, sorry, one king of Magad who is Ajata Shatru, and the second king, I think, of Koshal, who is Prasenajit. But after that, Ashok becomes the third king in Buddhist history to hold this council, where certain points, certain contentious points between the various sects that have emerged within Buddhism by then, various schools of thought, these points are debated and put to rest finally. But a lot of money gets spent on this, and the legend tells us towards the end of it that Ashok's ministers are particularly disturbed, particularly anxious because of this kind of spend that's happening. And when Ashok tells them that until now he has spent 96 kotis, which can stand for 96 crores, he wants to actually reach the goal of 100 crores. And so he says, I want another 4 crores to be given away to the Sangha from my state treasury. At this point, the ministers put down their foot and they go to Ashok's grandson Sampadin and request him to issue orders that will restrain Ashok from using any more money from the state treasury. It's a telling story of what may have happened to some extent, which is Ashok may have actually depleted a lot of the state funds to fulfill his own ambition of spreading the Buddha's word. And this may have led to a lot of conflicts, friction between him and his administration, him and his family, perhaps him and his people as well. And therefore, the legend does have these undercurrents, but of course, in very exaggerated tones. And we have to see through it, we have to read through it and not take everything, you know, in a very literal sense. So Ashok is reduced to penury, he does not have access to the treasury, he starts giving away his gold and silver vessels in the end and he's left with just half an amlaka fruit, which is like a citrusy fruit. He's just left with that and now uh, he's, he tells his ministers to even give away that half a fruit to the Sangha. If that is his last worldly possession, he says, just give it away to the Sangha, I don't desire that either. The ministers are somewhere embarrassed by, you know, this whole unfolding of events, the way they go behind Ashok's back. And so when he's on his deathbed and sort of writing his will, he tells them that since he has given away everything, the only thing left with him are the lands that he has won over, the kingdom that he has on this planet. 
and he says after my death promise me that you will hand over the earth and in that he means his land his kingdoms to the sangha as well now the ministers have to somehow agree because they don't want to deny a dying king and a great king like ashok his last wish so they agree and ashok seals the will with his teeth apparently that was the done thing for ashok to seal any important document with his own teeth to ensure that you know it's not sort of signed off by anyone else and then he breathes his last interestingly after ashok is dead his minister radhagupt actually comes up with a clever ploy to retrieve these lands from the buddhist sangha he goes to the sangha and says that all of this was done because our king wanted to give you 4 crores beyond what he had already given so why don't we do this we will give you those 4 crores and you return the land and he gets the land back and then ashok's dynasty goes on for another 5 generations interestingly the ashok avdan mentions the fifth successor as pushyamitra whereas other historical sources as well as legends talk about pushyamitra as the first founding member of the shunga dynasty and he is supposed to have overthrown his own master bruhadrath in the other legends in the other puranas etc and uh, however in this legend it is pushyamitra who is shown as the fifth successor and to outdo ashok Pushyamitra asks his ministers his advisers and by then he has brahman advisers in the place of buddhist advisers and they tell him that if you want to outdo ashok in terms of his fame you should do something as big as he had done so he had created 84000 stupas how about you destroying those 84000 stupas to earn the same amount of fame and so pushyamitra goes on to do that and he earns his fame however Pushyamitra himself is killed by a yaksha at the end of the story and so with his death the Ashok Avdana as well comes to a rest Interesting isn't it that this legend does not talk about Ashok's Kalinga war does not talk about the edicts the contents of the edicts there's only a fleeting remark somewhere that a number of inscription plates were also dispatched wherever the stupas were created but it never talks about the content of the edicts doesn't talk about the lofty pillars that ashok erected in so many places so perhaps by the time this um version or this entire legend was written maybe the script of ashok had gone out of circulation maybe people could not read it anymore because even when samudragupta makes an inscription of his own in the first or second century of the common era on one of ashok's pillars he does not refer to ashok perhaps it means by then people had lost the habit of reading the ashok brahmi it could also mean that some of these sites of the rock edicts were no longer as significant and people had probably forgotten about them they had perhaps faded away in the background of the new society that was developing in the years of the common era we can never say with certainty why some things were omitted why certain things were retained or created but that's how legends are legends are based on sentiments legends are based on what someone wants to magnify in a particular story and in this case the buddhists make a great job of magnifying the role of buddhism the role of buddhist monks in transforming even a very evil king like ashok into one who became a devout buddhist 
who became a forgiving king and who went on to create 84000 stupas even if they were not 84000 and they were 8000 i think the idea the buddhists want to give is ashok was responsible in a big way for the spread of buddhism so with that i end this legend of ashok there were of course many short stories that i skipped about his family and so on but you can pick up john strong's ashok afdan and read for yourself it's a great read very interesting there's a lot of contextual material that he has included even before he dives into the actual story so make sure you pick it up it's available on amazon and other sites in the next episode i'm going to tell you the story of ashok as told by the buddhist monks but this time they are from the island of sri lanka and they tell a very different narrative there are some common themes there but most of the narrative is very different from what you just heard so look forward to that episode stay tuned and until then goodbye to all of you keep listening keep exploring keep coming back to the long history short